I'm your host, Matt Monero, with another episode of the You Need More Money podcast. On this podcast, it's a bonus episode where we're replaying an interview that I did with Bill Carmody. Bill Carmody is known as the Marketing Whisperer. He's a major contributor to Inc. Magazine and just an overall super bright guy. We talk about a lot of different things on this. I mean, how do you get marketing? How do you get visibility? How do you get exposure? Um, and I really enjoyed my talk with Bill. I've been lucky enough to meet Bill on a few other occasions, too. Recently, I was actually at the uh, Jocko Willick. If you're familiar with Jocko Willick, the Navy SEAL who runs Echelon Front, if you don't know him, you should definitely look up Jocko, J-O-C-K-O, on YouTube. You'll see some incredible videos. He does an amazing podcast. And uh, I saw Bill there, and we ended up having dinner afterwards, and we got reconnected. And uh, I really respect Bill and the way that he approaches marketing and his thought process to it. Bill's primary thing is social listening, the ability to actually find out what the heck your customers want to hear. And this is the interview that Bill and I did as a bonus episode of You Need More Money podcast. Do me a favor, like the podcast, subscribe, leave comments, tell us what you think about it. And here we go. Enjoy this one with me and Bill Carmody. Hi, I'm Bill Carmody, and I'm the Marketing Whisperer. And I'm very excited today to have Matt Monero on the show with me today. Uh, he has started uh, four businesses that has generated over $1 billion and, and uh, 10,000 clients. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show with me today, Matt. My pleasure, Bill. So a billion dollars in revenue that starts with the very first sale. So let's start there. What did you do to launch your first business? My first business uh, was, uh, was derived out of circumstance. I was very happily employed with an equipment finance company. Uh, 1995, they transferred me to Dallas. I was supposed to open up our first office and move back to California, back to the beach and after a one-year stint here in Dallas to get everything set up. And the minute I moved here, everything changed. The budget that we agreed upon, the growth plans, the, the org chart, everything changed. And, and within a couple months, I had to make a decision of, am I going to deal with these changes, which is not what I signed up for, or am I going to do this thing on my own? And I decided to do it on my own. And that was 21 years ago. And it has been an unbelievable journey of ups and downs and highs and lows. But in, in 1995, you're, you started your very, very first client on sort of a fold-out table and a, a cell phone. Is that correct? I did. I had, well, I had a, a, a landline because 95, the cell phones were really not in, you know, <laughs> as like they are today. But I literally started with a folding table, a phone, and a Yellow Pages in a one-bed, dumpy one-bedroom apartment. Um, in Dallas, Texas, in November of 1995. So now, so just talk to me about so the very, very first client you had was a trucker. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me is that basically he took a chance on you with as your very first client before anybody else did. So what was that relationship like? What was sort of the thing you did to really build that relationship right out of the gate? I didn't have any money to start the business. I mean, zero money. So I, every sale I made is what kept revenue and kept the doors open. Um, and, uh, you know, right after I started the business um, in uh, March of 1996, I was in that dumpy one-bedroom apartment. I watched the repo man drive away with my car. Ah, oh, terrible, terrible. 
I watched it happen. I was down to my last 40 bucks. I had it on a Shell gas card, and I remember walking to the Shell gas station on the corner. I bought $40 worth of milk and Frosted Flakes, and I walked back to that apartment and said, I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to do something better than what I have already done. And um, I became very reliant on the few customers that I had. Uh, one in particular, a fellow named Bobby Whitfield out of Greenville, Texas, an old school trucker. I mean, just when you picture cowboy, smoking and the bandit kind of deal, that was Bobby Whitfield. And for some reason, he took a liking to me, Bill. He, yeah. He liked me. And so he wanted to do business with you because he liked you. He more than wanted to do business. He didn't want me to go out of business. I mean, That's he, great. I would call him and say, Bobby, it's over. I cannot pay the rent. And he would say, you're my finance guy. I'm going to buy a truck. You're going to finance it and you're going to make it. And that's what he would do. And he did it time and time and time again for me. He believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And it was just, it was just an unbelievable experience for me to, to, to have had someone have that level of confidence in me when I just couldn't see, I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So tell me, what did he see that you didn't even see in yourself? I mean, I think in hindsight, he saw that I had a tremendous desire, just just a, a, an, an insatiable appetite to do better. Um, and he knew that I cared about him. I mean, remember, my competition in our industry are big publicly traded banks. They don't care about the small guys. And I was a small guy, and I cared about the small guy, and he knew that. He knew I did good work. I just didn't have any scale or any volume to – to rely upon cash flow. And that's such an important lesson for entrepreneurs. You need scale. This idea of small business, you know, owner operator idea, I think it's, it's, it's hogwash. You need scale. You need revenue to keep the doors open when things are bad. You know, when, when I, when I really got my motivation to be an entrepreneur, I was 12 years old. Uh -huh. My parents got divorced and I had this unsatiable feeling that I had to step up and be the man of the house, which is a crazy, crazy thought. But at the 12 years old, I was like, this is what I have to do. Um, I understand you also come from divorced parents. Was that sort of a triggering event in your life or was there a different event that really got you off on the entrepreneurial journey? There's no question. My, my real father left when I was six months old, left my mother in law. I never heard from him again. I never saw him again. Know nothing about him. Um, and that without question was a, was an act of desperation that sticks with me today. Um, mm. I mean, I still, I can still feel that, uh, that ripping and tearing. Of course, at six months, you don't know, but, but you know pretty soon after that, that something's different in your house than some of the other kids. My mother eventually remarried um, to a gentleman who adopted me, and, you know, he, it was always different. He loved me, and I give him credit for loving me. I never doubted that he loved me, but, but he didn't do much in building my self-esteem or my sister's self-esteem. He was very hard on us at the wrong times, and I think he created a chip on my shoulder that, to be frank with you, even though I, you know, have a very successful business, I still have a chip on my shoulder today. So you have something to prove. You're out there oh, to prove something. I, oh, so, and, and I say that because I think every entrepreneur starts somewhere in that life, in that journey, where something happens, some sort of traumatic event, and they're like, okay, I can't depend on the world to take care of me. I've got to go take care of myself. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sooner or later, you have to put your big boy or big girl pants on and say that if it's gonna if it's if it's gonna be, it's up to me, and we've got to do something with it. I think one of the challenges, though, for a lot of entrepreneurs is is they when they start to make it a little bit, that they fall into this false positive trap that I, I call it. It's where it's where you know you 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 the the mail doesn't come in pink slips anymore. Right. And, and you can take your significant other for a nice dinner maybe a nice vacation. It's easier to buy Christmas presents and, and we get lulled to sleep again. Sure. I mean, I, the way I phrase that is success doesn't breed more success. Success breeds complacency. And oftentimes if you don't kick your own ass, you know, the industry will eventually catch up and, and yeah. take you over. Right. But it'll remind you why you got into business. <laughs> the market takes no prisoners. It is a, it is a very clear indication of those who are hustling and those who are not. So, so talk to me about when you started your very first business venture. How old were you? Did you have a paper out? Did you like cut lawns? What did you do? I was always that kid. I was always the kid. I grew up in Connecticut. I was always the kid shoveling snow, mowing the lawns. I have a 14-year-old son, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And I tell them, by the time I was your age, I had a wallet and it had greenbacks in it. You guys, <laughs> you guys don't know what it's like to pull weeds all day and, and get paid, you know, whatever it was back then, a couple bucks an hour. So I was always entrepreneurial. I always enjoyed money. Um, I had a few other business ventures. I had a t-shirt business that went terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a few other sort of starts and stops along the way, but I always knew that I was going to be in charge of my own destiny. I always knew that sooner or later I was going to have to be the, um, the, the guy, but it, it just came a little early. I was 25 when I, when I was sort of, uh, you know, thrown into the deep end of running my own business. And that was a blessing and a curse, right? Because I had not heavy bills, so I could uh, I could handle the lack of revenue in the early days, which is really important. I think it's very, it's a very real concern for entrepreneurs who have a family and have a house and they have, you know, all these other uh, things. It's harder to leave in your 30s and 40s yes. than it is when you're 25. So let's talk about that a little more. What was the scariest time when you just thought, I'm not going to make it? Now, and you said early on when you first started, that's one thing. You know, you're on your own, you're by yourself. But I'm talking about now you've had some success. Now you've done some incredible things. You're building this real business. People are depending on you. And it's no longer just you quitting and throwing the towel and it's you that is affected, but all these other people. Tell me about that scariest time when you really just weren't even sure you could make payroll and things were just going down the tubes. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember, uh, I can remember this specifically, and I talk about it in in my book too, where, um, where, and Bill, I can remember the feel right now of touching the metal doorknob at my house and walking in. I can feel how that feels, knowing that when I walked in on that Friday afternoon, my wife was going to ask me this one question that she would ask me all the time did you pay yourself today? And wow. for some reason on this one day, I chose to tell her the truth, which was no, because I hadn't paid myself in months and I had lied to her this entire time. Oh yeah, I paid myself, I paid myself. And she said, did you pay yourself? And I said, no. And she said, I'm going to ask you one question. Did you pay your employees? And I said, yes. And she said, what's the matter with you? How could you do that to your family? It was my wife and three boys. Yeah. This was in 2003. Right after September 11th, nobody was buying equipment. If we can go back to that time frame, it was a very scary time. Um, and I, I didn't have cash flow again after having a little bit of success. And um, 
And she would say, you're going to be so much bigger than your business, Matt. One day you'll realize that you're going to be bigger than your business. And I said, uh, I made a choice. So that, that moment, I remember I said, I'm going to build a $100 million company. I'm going to shut my wife up. And I did it. <laughs> And I did both. Well, instead of you transition from the chip to the mute button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my wife doesn't ever ask me those questions anymore, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's a nice that's a nice side. It's a, it's an important factor for for entrepreneurs, Bill, to understand that sooner or later you have to get out of the pain side of your business and you have to get into the pleasure side. And the pleasure side, I define it as the business is finally doing what you designed it to do in the first place. Right. right? Whether it's freedom, whether it's cash flow, whether it's helping others, whatever that why was when you built it, boy, it's magic when you can actually run a business in that zone. It's, 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 to me, it's one of the greatest pleasures on earth. So Matt, one of the things that I really like is the fact that you and I have both been on the Inc. 5000 list more than once. And so what I want to ask you is, what would you say is your biggest, the biggest contribution to uh, allowing you to be on the Inc. 5000 list? Well, you have to get, I mean, to make that list, you, you have to have a serious plan. Um, I don't know too many people on that list that made it by happenstance. Maybe they made it one year, right? But it looks like we'll win it again this year, which would be three years in a row. After 20 years, that's a pretty tough thing to do. And it's very specific because I have a very clear strategic plan, not a business plan, but a strategic plan. It's a what I what what Inc. magazine often calls the BHAG, right? The big right. audacious goal. That first big one was a hundred million. That got us on the list. The next goal, and I share it with everybody in the office, is to do a billion dollars a year. We did 104 million last year. Now it's to do a billion. And people look at me like I'm crazy. And and I say, well, you know what? People looked at me like I was crazy when I said a hundred million too from a one bedroom apartment. It was insane. <laughs> So, so, and, and here's what I'm interested in. You, you still have four companies, right? Are you trying to build billion-dollar companies for each one, or is it the all con combined $4 billion across the four companies? Yeah, they're all integrated in, the, in what I refer to as they're all under the umbrella. So we have the finance business. We have the credit improvement business. We have an auction and a dealer business. And then we have the network business, which is really our advertising platform. Um, all of those combined will fit into the, into the scheme. Um, they're also complementary businesses. For example, uh, lots of people in our space, the transportation space, have tough credit. So credit repair is a good business to be in to help those guys. If we clean up their credit, then they come back to us for financing. The auction business is a wonderful business in a recession when people need to unload equipment. We're in that space. And then the network is this uh, very sort of interesting platform of you know, we, we do um, videos that benefit the transportation industry. The network's called RoadGrit.tv. It's the only one out there doing it. Now, I don't know why Wells Fargo didn't do this or GE Capital didn't do it or Bank of America didn't do it, but they weren't doing it. So we did it. There's no reason for a small independent finance company in Dallas to do it, but we did it. Hmm. Well, and, and that's interesting. Do you, does everybody have access to that or only your clients? No, it's free to the industry at roadgrit.tv. You don't even have to put in your email address to subscribe. We'll move to that model maybe next year, but it's free. We have our own studio here in the office. We produce all of the, our own content, um, which is a huge expense for us. We'll probably spend more in marketing this year 
than we have spent in the previous 20 years combined. Amazing. Because of that network, yeah. Well, so, so let's, let's, let's switch to that gear because here's one of the things that I'm constantly telling my, my clients is you have to give it up for free, right? You have to be able to provide value to someone before they ever, so that they can know, like, and trust you. The idea of basically charging value for value right out of the gate is more of an antiquated concept. It's today, people want to know that you're the real deal. And the only way they're going to know that is by experiencing some value you've created. So it sounds like where you've really focused that is around videos. Is that correct? It is. Our video is our primary platform for marketing moving forward. But on your point, Bill, I think it's very important for people to understand that that the if you're doing what you're doing to figure out how to make money on it, I'm not saying that's not important, but you should never feel guilty for giving something for free that helps your customers run a better business ever. If you feel that, if that's a conflict for you, that's a bigger issue in your business. Being able to deliver value for free is what the experts do. Right. And, and, and what happens is, is it sets you apart because basically when everybody else is asking for long registration forms, credit card numbers, I mean, it's very like, okay, I feel like I'm, I've committed to something that I don't fully appreciate or understand. When you actually add that value first, you, people get to know you. They understand what you think, how you think, and why you do what you do. And so there's the value you're creating right up front. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. One other thing, though, is you need to use those freebies as a competitive advantage. So for example, we sell the network as don't register, cost you nothing, right? always free. So we're using these frees as value added services that, that we're telling the customer we make it this easy for you to get to know us. And then you, you know, in, in addition to doing all the things you've already accomplished, you know, building a billion dollars of revenue, now building a billion dollar business, right? Now you're since you, you've, you found time to write a book, right? So talk to me about grit. Tell me a little bit about your book and sort of what compelled you to sort of go out there and take that time to write that book and, and put and share it with your fellow entrepreneurs. The, the book is called uh, the grit. Uh, the only thing you need to make millions. It's not a, a biography. Um, it's really my version of how to build a successful business, really step by step what we have done to, to build a successful business. But, but I, I wrote Grit not to tell my story. I really wrote it as a marketing tool, and I'm not afraid to admit it. It's a self-published book. I've given away probably five times more than I've sold. It is my <laughs> business card. Um, I, I give that book. If I'm in a lunch meeting, I don't carry business cards anymore. I only carry my book. Awesome. That, that is my business. Makes, makes it a little bulky, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's a quick read. It's only 100 pages. It's, oh, that's good. Excellent. But, so but again, it differentiates you from everybody else. And many of my conversations with clients and, and large banks who buy our loans, and they want to talk more about the book and the radio show and the network than they do our core business. Well, and you see, it keeps getting back to that same point, right? I mean, to me, that, that is exactly, you're adding value to the entire industry. And, you know, there are pay services, things like credit and things like credit repair, things like all the sort of adjunct pieces that you've brought together and built a very successful business around. But you started with the core customer need. And I think that's the part where you, when you give that up for free and people really add, you know, they get real value from you, then they want to connect with you. They want you to succeed. They want to be like that trucker you first met who wants to make sure that no matter what else happens, you need to succeed because you're providing tremendous value, not just to me, but my entire industry. You know, that's fantastic. I think you have to lead with that in today's marketplace. Also, for, for anyone of your audience, Bill, who, 
who is scared of video or putting themselves out there. I was terrified of it as well. Uh, it didn't come easy to me. I had a marketing manager, an old marketing manager, who used to tell me month after month, somebody needs to step up and be the face and voice of this business. And I, I would fight him on it tooth and nail. And then about two years ago, we said, you know, no one's doing it, so let's go ahead and do it. And I took the leap and I got uncomfortable and, and did. We now have over a thousand videos on the network and our YouTube channel. And um, I believe for, for the entrepreneurs listening, you have to have the guts to do that because the market requires it of you. They want to know who are they doing business with. Yes. And they're doing their research on your company, whether it's through Google searches or through YouTube searches. They're getting themselves prepared to not make a mistake in choosing you and you need to give them the content to make that that choice brilliant brilliant advice um thank you matt uh, matt monero uh you have a fantastic business you've got a great book you've got a lot of wonderful things going for you i really appreciate you being on the show today bill it's my pleasure anytime so to join this and other conversations, you can continue on with facebook.com slash the marketing whisperer. Um, I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much, Matt. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.